The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing the Star Trek Strange New Worlds episode, Lost in Translation. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today on the panel is Father Cory Stika. Hey, Father Cory. How's it going? Very well. And Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, be sure to stick around to the end because we have more of your listener feedback that we've received from listeners. Uh, that's how listener feedback works, I, bet, I suppose. And uh, we've got some good stuff to talk about. I also want to encourage you to share the podcast with your friends. I, I, I really want to encourage this because that is the number one way that this this community of great Star Trek fans grows. We reach more listeners. It's by your efforts. So we really do appreciate when you do that. And finally, uh, I want to tell you about another show on the StarQuest Network you are sure to enjoy called The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows. And you can find that wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash secrets. We're talking about this episode, Lost in Translation. Jimmy, can you give us a recap? This week's Uhura-centric episode features a visit from Lieutenant James T. Kirk of the USS Farragut. The Enterprise and the Farragut are in a nebula on the border of Gorn space where the Federation has built a deuterium mining station. But the station is offline, and they uncover evidence that it's been sabotaged. Eventually, they learn it was sabotaged by a Lieutenant Saul Ramon, who has been hearing noises and seeing visions. And he's lost his mind due to severe damage to the speech centers of his brain. The same thing starts to happen to Ensign Uhura. She starts hearing noises and seeing visions, including the death of her family and the deceased engineer Hammer, who appears as a zombie Anar. But she realizes that she's actually receiving impressions from interdimensional aliens who are linked to the deuterium they're mining. The mining efforts are killing them and they're screaming for help. They burned out Lieutenant Ramon, but Uhura realizes in time that they must shut down the deuterium mining station. Fortunately, the damage Lieutenant unfortunately, the damage Lieutenant Ramon did to it is preventing them from shutting it down. So they're forced to evacuate the station and blow it up with photon torpedoes because this is Star Trek and we need an explosion at the end. <laughs> yeah. Afterwards, the formerly zombie Hemmer appears to Uhura in a vision as his normal self. He smiles, nods, and disappears, indicating that the situation is now fixed. The end. All right. Um, let's go with our overall impressions to begin. I, I should say this is Star Trek and we need an explosion at the end, unless you're Voyager, in which case we need to stand around over consoles talking <laughs> dramatically. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Uh, Father Corey, what's your overall impression of this one? I, I kind of enjoyed this one. Um, Kirk, the the relationship between Kirk and Uhura was, was interesting, you know, at the bar. And I'm not looking at being hit on today. <laughs> yeah, that was good. That was um, good. But it was, was good. It was, it was interesting. You know, the, the hammer hammer zombie zombie was appropriately creepy. Um, and then kind of the, the realization, you know, slowly of, of her figuring out what's going on her with the Kirks, both Sam and James uh, figuring out what uh, was going on. It was, it was interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, yet another, you know, uh, life force in a nebula episode, but otherwise it was interesting. I enjoyed it. Yeah. How about you, Jimmy? 
I enjoyed it. It had a nice horror movie vibe. Um, I liked this is the first time, even though it's the third time we've seen James Kirk in this series. It's the first time it hasn't been in an alternate timeline mm-hmm. because um, this the first time we saw him was in an alternate timeline that Captain Pike was experiencing this time. The next time it was in an alternate timeline that. La'an was experiencing. And so this is the first time he's really been here. Mm-hmm. And it ties in to an episode uh, to when they introduced him in the Menagerie Part 1. Uh, Commodore Mendez asked Kirk, have you ever met Chris Pike? And Kirk responded when he was promoted to fleet captain. Mm-hmm. And in this right. episode, Pike is temporarily promoted to fleet captain. So this is the event that they were talking about. Like I said, it had a nice horror movie vibe. It also was nice seeing continuing fallout from the death of Hemmer, not only for Uhura, who who was attached to him, but also for number one, uh, because Hemmer's death complicates number one's perception of Pelia, who replaced him. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, so there was some interesting psychological stuff and there was effectively creepy horror stuff, you know, when, um, Uhura is seeing visions and hearing noises and stuff like that. And I thought it was a nice episode. So, uh, I like it. It was good. I like a Uhura episode. I think she does mm-hmm. a good job. And, um, I, all of those things you guys said, I want to add something about Paul Wesley being Kirk, which is that I feel like every time I see him show up as Kirk. It's more I like him better. Yeah. He's yeah. more and more like the Kirk. I expect he is more and more James T. Kirk. He's 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 growing into the character. Yes. The actor is yeah. growing into the character so much more. And we're seeing more of the, the personality of Kirk come out. Yeah. I think he's better written than he was in his first appearance as well. In sure. His most in his most recent two appearances. I think the the writing was better for Kirk. I was not a huge fan of his first appearance. It's like, I'm not sure this guy is right for this part. Yeah. But, um, but I, he's growing on me. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting to see it's sort of a bit of the Chris Pine perk for uh, Kirk from, uh, from the, the, the Kelvin timeline, a the bit what? of the, the, the Chris yeah, Pine. Yeah. The what? Yes. Okay. And uh, <laughs> from the, the, the timeline we should not speak of until we have to do those movies and the, uh, the, uh, the Shatner, Kirk and it's just mm-hmm. nice to see that kind of grow and that it's and also a bit of Paul Wesley's interpretation of the character and so it's nice to see that I enjoy that there's speculation and I just want to kind of get you guys sense of not whether it will happen but whether you would think of it of a of a TOS reboot series mm. uh, following Strange New Worlds what do you think I think they could do a prequel series patterned off the original series where um, where we have Pike retire from the Enterprise. He hands over command to Kirk and we get the unseen adventures of Kirk and the original crew because they apparently had adventures before mm-hmm. where no man has gone before. Mm-hmm. And we could explore that era. That could make sense. We had Gary Mitchell and we, you know, we mm-hmm. could have uh, those characters aboard. Yeah, that would be interesting to see. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm, I'm getting a little too... I, one thing to have prequels like Enterprise was like this is it's another thing when you're butting right up to that line, you know, where mm-hmm. the the you know that the last episode of that, you know, 
TOS prequel will lead right into TOS itself. Right. So that it, it sucks some of the drama out when you know that certain characters have to live and that sort of thing, oh, I guess. People say, people say this every time we talk about prequels, but I, I call nonsense on that <laughs> because, um, because we always know certain characters are going to live. They are not going to kill yeah. Captain Pike, you know, in this series. So Captain Pike has to live. We know they're not going to kill Uhura. It doesn't suck. It, when we were watching the original series, they weren't going to kill Uhura. They weren't weren't going to kill Captain Kirk. Not everybody's life has to be on the line to tell a good story. <clears throat> and particular, particularly if it's a picaresque format where every episode is episodic and you don't have an ongoing, say, story of a war you're telling then um, prequels can be just fine. The problem with Enterprise was not that it was a prequel. It was a badly done prequel because mm. they didn't realize what needed to happen in it. Mm. For, for me, it's not so much the, you know, the, you, you know, these characters aren't going to die. It, it's, there's a certain suspension of, of, of disbelief that you have to have, uh, of, um, especially when you're talking about the technology changes between 1960 and today. And, you know, you can argue, OK, yes, the Enterprise doesn't look like it did in TOS. And that is an issue of what they thought high tech looked like in 1967 is very different than what we think high tech looks like today. But then when you're going up to that actual moment where you finish watching one episode that was filmed in 2025 and then the next episode is 1967. For, for many of us, for myself, at least, it would break that. Mm. That point of, okay, this is clear, you know, this is supposed to be the same exact ship with the same exact crew, and it's just completely different. I suppose. I don't know that would bother me at this point. <laughs> it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't bother me. It would only be a momentary, my thought is for me, it would be only a momentary bump if I chose to watch TOS immediately after the last episode of an of a James T. Kirk Enterprise prequel. Um, and I wouldn't have any more trouble accepting it than I did the change in the Klingon makeup, for which they eventually explained, but I didn't need the explanation. This yeah. is just better. I just leave well enough alone. Leave well enough alone with TOS. It, it's, it's in the can. Leave it alone. Let's do other so things. So we made There's, our points. Yeah. We've yep. all expressed our views. Yeah. Uh, well, I didn't get my point, which was, um, oh, okay. uh, I would just like to say, I'm, I'm kind of done with prequels. Let's move on to the future. Let's do Star Trek with, uh, seven as captain uh whatever i forget what yeah. they, they were going to call that titan liberty legacy whatever. legacy let's do that <laughs> so <laughs> moving on to this episode uh it's interesting i think there's been a pattern of every episode starting with a different person giving a personal log i think that's mm -hmm. i think that's been the case yeah it's not always it's not always pike doing the per, the, the captain's, captain's log. log yeah um i have to say from the beginning as soon as the 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 phenomena started I'm like, oh, it's another aliens living in a gas cloud again, which we just did in Picard season three. I thought that was an odd choice to do that again. But, you know, at least it did start out when they're going into the nebula saying there's coffee in that nebula. So, I mean, <laughs> we're OK there. <laughs> right, right. Um, hey, I don't mind. I don't mind aliens in nebulas. Aliens have to live somewhere. And if it's not on a planet or a moon, it's going to be in a nebula. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, so we do get a bit of the, you know, the larger picture. We get, like you mentioned, Pike is fleet captain for this particular operation. Uh, the Farragut is with them because we know Kirk has been promoted to first officer Farragut, youngest first well, officer ever and all that. 
Although he's not technically first officer yet. Right. Mm-hmm. And presumably will be promoted from lieutenant. <laughs> to least. Le- oh, yeah. Lieutenant commander or commander. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the refinery is being built on the edge of Gorn space, which is a strategic strong point. For a little while, I was toying with the idea that maybe it was Gorn sabotage. You know, they're going to mm-hmm. play some political mm-hmm. intrigue. So uh, I, I enjoyed Yohora is trying to figure out what's making this the sound that only she heard. She thinks it might have been in the communications array. So she goes and follows the uh, YouTube DIY video that Hammer made for her, which I, I just thought was a nice little touch because it felt a lot like, OK, you follow along. You know, how do I replace this thing on my car? I'll follow the YouTube yep. video. <laughs> I did that with a chair just yesterday. <laughs> exactly. Yep. We yeah. all do that. <laughs> the uh, It was nice having the actor playing Hammer back. Because he really he's not just in archive footage in this. He is playing the zombie. He is. I, I'm pretty sure the he is playing himself at the end or, yep. you know, the image of him at the end. He is also, I believe, doing the the YouTube video new. I don't think mm-hmm. that's archival footage. Right. No. So he they actually brought him back and paid him a salary. And that was nice. Um, yeah. It took me the longest time to remember what the noise that Uhura hears sounds like because it's this very harsh, vibrating, discordant noise. And it finally occurred to me, oh, it's the Breen noise from the yeah. Breen, from Deep Space Nine. Whenever the Breen speak, it, they're, they don't have artificial, they don't have universal translators. And so you hear this jarring noise and it's that that this yeah. noise sounds like. That is It true. sounds like a distorted whisper. Kind of yeah. like, you know, where you can't make out what's being whispered, but you can tell that it's a like a voice whispering mm-hmm. something. Yeah, very distorted voice. I wonder if that's intentional. Are we meeting a, some connection I, I to the green? So. Yeah. No. Um, we should talk about what deuterium is, though. Okay. Um, the, so deuterium is an isotope of hydrogen. Normal hydrogen has one proton and deuterium has one proton and two neutrons. So it's heavier. There's also a, another one called uh, tritium, but we won't go into that. Deuterium is actually useful, despite how low it is on the periodic table. It has properties that would make it very useful in producing nuclear fusion. Mm-hmm. It would do better than regular hydrogen. And so um, if they're still using nuclear fusion, which I guess they are, it would make sense for them, in addition to matter-antimatter reactions, it would it could make sense for them to want to collect deuterium. What did not make sense was they initially, um, when Uhura starts hearing the noise and seeing the visions, Dr. Mbenga tells her that she may be experiencing deuterium poisoning because she was exposed to a very small amount of deuterium. And it's like, okay, no, 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 no. You're because you're because um because deuterium is an isotope of hydrogen, your body's going to treat it like hydrogen. You know, anything that has the same number of electrons on its outer shell and and is is going to get treated the same by your body. That's why radium is so bad for humans to consume. Now, early in the 20th century, there was a product called Radiothor, which was marketed as a health drink. Because radium releases energy, and so it must give you more energy. So (laughs) we'll bottle it and sell it to people, and you can drink radium, and it will improve your energy level. 
And <laughs> and there was this millionaire who had no money worries. And so he bought cases of Radiothor and drank it every day mm. until his jaw fell off. Because what happens is radium is in it has the same number of electrons on its outer shell as calcium. And so your body looks at radium and says, oh, that's calcium. We can use that to build bones. And the bones that are under the most stress in our bodies are our jaws because we're constantly chewing. They get microfractures. Our body uses calcium to repair them. But if you drink radiothor, it will use radium to repair them and you will have a permanently radioactive jaw that will eventually drop off. Um, So deuterium is going to be treated by your body as if it's hydrogen. And it is possible to get deuterium poisoning, but not at these levels. Um, You could survive having 20 to 25% of your body water replaced by heavy water with deuterium. And that's like... So you would have to drink, you know, we have gallons of water in our bodies. You would have to drink gallons of heavy water to get deuterium poisoning. Yeah. And it, or at least enough to kill you. And mm-hmm. you could easily take a sip, which would be more deuterium than Uhura was exposed to, and you would be fine. Right. And probably wouldn't be hallucinations or that sort. No. That's one of the things that bugs me with stories like this. I mean, it's a minor complaint, but how. The, the doctors often dismiss the complaints like you see weird stuff all the time. Don't dismiss these complaints offhand yeah. as exhaustion and whatever, like e- explore them. But of course, it's for the story purposes and we have to have a story. So I don't mind that. I mean, for every Uhura that has something serious happening, there are probably a dozen Barclays coming into sick bay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Guys trying to get out of work. Yeah, because you've got people are not trying to get out of work, just people who are we go into weird situations. And so it's like if you have a poltergeist in your house, you're going to start thinking everything that goes weird is caused by yep. the poltergeist. So if you're exploring weird stuff every week. You're going to have everyone thinking my minor symptom is caused by aliens invading and (laughs) and you you need Dr. Mbenga as a paranormal investigator to calm him down and say, let's look at a natural explanation (laughs) for this. I was going to say, we could talk about another spirit, you know, because they do have like actual alcohol on the ship in the bar and maybe someone goes (laughs) and has a little too much. And the reason why you're hallucinating isn't because of an alien. It's because you're all down drunk. Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah, I, I, or I guess this is a Boimler in Lower Decks ends up uh, going to sick bay a lot for those sorts of things. <laughs> so it, when uh, Uhura is working on the communication system, real, realigning it or whatever, uh, Pelia shows up who's messing with my warp engines because it's in the nacelle. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, she reveals, Uhura reveals, well, actually Pelia reveals that Hammer was what she says, one of my best students. Really? No, I just say that because he's dead. It's <laughs> yeah. the sort of thing you he, say when someone has died. He was average. Yeah. <laughs> it was a nice change of face to, to have that uh, a little honesty. And, uh, you know, the question is, is has Yohora been avoiding Pelia? And that comes up again with uh, number one, Una. Mm-hmm. The, are the, you know, are they avoiding Pelia because she's replaced a beloved friend and crew crewmate who they lost? Yeah. And that seems like a natural thing to happen. Um, then we get the zombie hammer encounter in the turbo lift, which was uh, frightening. <laughs> nice, mm-hmm. nice horror moment. And 
Pelia knows that something is uh, more is wrong with the refinery. She's got this sense that because she goes over there, Una is over there. They're they're looking for what's the problem is they have to get this refinery online. And, um, you know, there's a, I get this feeling there's more to the going on. It just doesn't smell right. And Una dismisses her. Uh, I don't base my decisions on feelings and smells. She's very, you know, Vulcan in that sense, you know, the uh, mm-hmm. ignoring that. But uh, there just seems to be this sense of uh, people underestimating Pelia because she seems mm-hmm. kind of um, frivolous. But space hippie. Yeah. She calls her a space <laughs> Literally hippie. is called a space hippie. Yes. But, you know, she's also got experience of thousands of years of life of, of various kinds. Uh, so ignore that at your peril. It's interesting. It's, Pelia does kind of come off as a space hippie. Um, although she says, that's a new one on me. Yeah. yeah. Um, but number one and and Pelia both have points. Pelia's point is number one has some kind of beef with her that she's not facing or not willing to talk about. And um, but number one has points, too. Uh, she at one point, you know, she she tells Pelia th- she thinks she's sloppy and disobeys orders. And um, she has a really cutting remark in in watching the good place. You know, they have characters who are playing demons on that show. And one of the things it's it's comedy. And one Mm -hmm. of the things that struck me about the insults the demons use is how banal they are. (laughs) It's like, you know, you're a silly poopy head kind of thing. It's like that's not going to hurt anybody. (laughs) Um, The really crushing insults would be to go would be things like going to a boss and say, you know, your your subordinates don't think as highly of you as they think you do, and they mm. only tolerate your opinions because you're in a superior position. Mm-hmm. I mean, that would really rattle a boss. Um, well, number one gives Una a crushing insult at one point. She says, you've been in Starfleet since before I was born, but I outrank you. Why do you think that is? Like, oh, wow, burn, you know, yeah. <laughs> burn. <laughs> I, I did like I did like the discussion, though, where, where Una's dressing her down, dressing Pella down. And, and you've got crumbs on your uniform. Where did you even find food <laughs> right. to eat? Yeah. <laughs> Why are you so sloppy? <laughs> so uh, then we have, as you mentioned, Jim Kirk showing up to visit with his brother, Sam. So and nice boy, moment. do they have boy, do they have civil, sibling rivalry going? Oh, mm. yeah. Yeah. Uh, Kirk has been promoted, as I mentioned, to first officer, youngest first ever in Starfleet. And Sam resents Jim, this younger brother, because he's making him look bad in front of their dad. You know, you're mm-hmm. you're going all these places and I'm just, you know, in a science lab. And Jim kind of gives it to him like, yeah, maybe you should get out of the science lab and do something. You know, it's it's up to you. It's an interesting conundrum because like, if you have a younger sibling or a, a sibling at all who just is so much better at everything than you are, it can yeah. feel a little <laughs> or, uh, well, and, left out. Well, and, the, and they mentioned that the previous holder of the, the record for the youngest first officer was George Kirk Sr. Yes. In other words, their dad. And right. so that's part of where this issue is coming in, where Sam doesn't feel like he's appreciated by the family as much as the, the shining star. Jim is. Mm. They really need to bring 
uh, George Quirk Sr. in and have it be played by Chris Hemsworth, like from those <laughs> movies we don't talk about. <laughs> yeah. Good luck with that. They're not going to spend that kind of money. No. Well, and it may play into part of why Sam eventually leaves Starfleet and becomes a colonist. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's, he becomes that. Uh, and then gets, then gets killed by a space parasite, mm-hmm. a flying, o- yep. flying omelet, hermit crab <laughs> stinger thing. <laughs> You'd think, well, yeah, I mean, there's a there's a bit of a continuity problem because Spock would have recognized Sam, obviously, uh, in that episode if he if, you know, if this sort of information, if they had served on the Enterprise already. But I don't I, I don't know that there's an inconsistency there. Um, I'd, I'd have, have to go back and check the yeah. original episode. Yeah. yeah. So uh, then we have Spock and Christine Chapel talking about their relationship that has started and discussing whether to report their fraternization um you know as it develops into a relationship and i'm thinking if reg- if their regulations are anything like today's military that's already past that line they need to report what's happened already yeah. well but she's a civilian contractor basically she's not military that's one thing they said in the, uh. when she, in the beginning of strange new worlds is she's she's ba- like i said basically a contractor that could explain why she's always in the white uniform rather than in a blue one like in Benga. Yep. Right. Exactly. Right. Even though she does have stripes on her on the edge of her sleeve, that might not be a rank. Stripe. That might be civilian equivalent. Yeah. Yeah. Right. In fact, someone pointed out that there's another female medical personnel mm-hmm. um, wearing white in the background, blonde with a similar haircut to Dr. I'm trying to remember it as I was just before I was going to say it, but the, the, the female uh, psychologist from the second pilot, um, the, uh, you know, where no man has gone before who, who ends up Elizabeth dying with Daner. Daner, right. They're wondering is, is this background character going to be set in the stage for introducing Elizabeth Daner? So that would be interesting to see. Um, any case they've, they, their, their relationship stuff is still part of this, uh, developing in the background here of this episode. Uh, so you talk about the, the scene where you oh. meets good. I, I should mention, cause we alluded to civilian ranks and there they do for purposes of facilitating interactions between civilian contractors and military personnel have rank equivalents for civilians. So you're not, a you're not a captain let's say but they give you a designation that in the in the pay scale and in the authority level kind of may you can say okay this person's a civilian but if they were in the military they'd be a captain and in certain circumstances that's my point and so so it facilitates the interaction between uh between military personnel and civilians when they're in these formal settings and and I would and I would I would say I'd like to say in certain circumstances because I worked with contractors all the time when I was in the Air Force and we really never you know they would have been probably you know airman equivalent or whatever but we never that yeah. was never a consideration the big time big time you'll actually see that is when you have uh, distinguished visitors coming on base mm-hmm. uh, VIPs like say the Archbishop of Military Service uh, Car- uh, uh, Archbishop Brolio is a two star general equivalent so he is treated like when he comes on base he is treated as if a two-star general just came on base including mm. for housing uh, i heard a story from a chaplain that was at malmstrom air force base outside of great falls here mm-hmm. and uh 
Archbishop was just going to stay at his his uh, housing on base. And I guess the the uh, the the military PR, the uh, public affairs threw a fit that they even (laughs) think about that, because this was a two star general was just going to go be in, you know, regular officers housing. We can't have that. He's got to have, you know, the nice suite at billeting and all that instead. Yeah. You can also imagine how it could be important for a nurse to have this kind of rank because she's going to need to order people to take their meds or or take tests or things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. So uh, well, let's talk about the the meeting before of Bihura and Kirk, and and that's this is nice because there is this is a relationship that will go on as we've seen mm-hmm. for many decades, um, and there's always seemed to be a bond between Kirk and Uhura. Uh, you know, not the same friendship that he has, say, with Spock and McCoy, but there's a kind of a mutual uh, admiration and, you know, leader, follower, respect, respect. Yep. And it's nice to see the beginning here. And as you mentioned, Father Corey, she does the uh, I, I'm not interested in being hit on. <laughs> and yeah. he's like, you sat next to me. I'm not hitting on you. <laughs> I, I thought that was good. And uh, but then she slugs him in, a, in in the middle of a hallucination <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and then has to. uh yeah, and he takes it pretty well, given what's going on, mm-hmm. and tries to help her, and it creates this this you know ability for him to become part of the the story and and aid her in finding getting to the root of what's going on. So I like that. So you has. Well, some- I, love, I do. I do love the line where she hits him, and he's laying on the on the ground like. I really am not trying to hit on you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, there are several more hallucinations. There's uh, one on the refinery. The Uhura has one on the bridge. So things are clearly, you know, get, getting worse. And then uh, at one point I was thinking, this feels like Inception a little bit. Like when they're looking for uh, Mendez in the, on the ship, going Ramon. through the corridors. Because I felt like... Ramon. Ramon, sorry, Ramon. And um, he's... It felt like you, what's real and what isn't. Is mm-hmm. this is Uhura really experiencing these events, or is this just her mm-hmm. imagination? So there was a bit of question there. Although it turned out that it was they they made it clear which was right. you know at, after that point which was real and which wasn't. It it also was like Alien, mm-hmm. yes. the hunting hunting through the corridors. I did think to myself at the time though, if she's having hallucinations where she's lashing out at people. Maybe don't give her a phaser. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's they do have a bit where, um, you know, Kirk is like, OK, you're hallucinating. I'm going to walk you to sick bay. And she's like, no, I'll go. You need to help find Ramon. And there's another point where he tells her to wait for it. Wait for me. And she doesn't wait. She just goes mm-hmm. off. So there's a bit of sloppiness about that, but you can attribute it to the fact that she's hallucinating, but they should have had someone come and walk her to sick bay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, and then she, she calls in as, as she's supposed to be going to sick bay calls in. Oh, I found where he went. He went up to, to the port in the cell. And of course they immediately respond. Okay. We're going to be there. Instead of saying, now, are you really sure that you saw <laughs> this blood trail leading up or, you know, well, and as usual, stay where you are, wait for us to come. <laughs> sure. And then they go, she just goes. Yeah. Immediately goes up the, the Jeffrey's tube. Yeah. There's also a nice scene where after some of this has been happening and Ramon ends up getting blown out into space and yeah. Kirk and, and Uhura are saved by an emergency beam out once the once they're exposed to the vacuum of space. Um, but then after that, there's a scene where Uhura is talking about her problems 
uh, with death and facing it because she had her brother and her parents die in a shuttle crash. She had Hemmer, who was kind of a mentor to her, died last season. And she she is traumatized by that. She says, you know, after her parent uh, parents and brother died, she just closed her eyes and see them and their deaths and how horrible they were. She wasn't a witness of them, but she'd imagine it. And and she's not sure how she can function as a Starfleet officer having um, having this kind of problem dealing with death. And Kirk tells her, maybe you can't. You know, maybe you maybe you can't serve as a Starfleet officer if you can't face death. You know, you can, and he says you can either uh, let death win or you can fight back. But he says, I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. You may not be able to function as an officer if you can't deal with this. And he encourages her to deal with it, which she then does. Right. Right. Um, I thought that was a really. Yeah, I thought it was a really good scene. I liked the the mm-hmm. fact that. He, like you said, he doesn't sugarcoat it, that he makes her confront this and say, you know, you you can't just wish it away. It's something you have to deal with. And if you can't deal with it, you know, maybe you're done. I, I did like that. Um, So we do get on encountering Kirk for the first mm-hmm. time, the Kirk of this timeline, timeline. universe. Um, and uh, she has an appropriate reaction given her experiences. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of, uh, I don't think he, I don't know if he notices her reaction. I'm trying to remember now, but um, whether it's odd, he, he notices that she's reacting in some way to him. And he tells her as she's walking off, I haven't forgotten about that drink because she had called him up on an iPad, yep. you know, an episode or so ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he said, next time, you know, we're at the same star base or whatever, we can have a drink. Right. Yep. Right. So um, I did think it odd with the when Yuhura goes to the nacelle to confront Ramon. This is a note I, I, I skipped is she doesn't just stun him. She tries to talk him down. I don't know if it's mm-hmm. odd or not, but I think she's maybe she's trying to get through to him. But like my my first reaction would be. Okay, he seems like irrational and he's doing something dangerous. I have this weapon that allows me to incapacitate someone. I might just do that. Just stun him. Just yeah. stun yeah. him. That's all you got to do. You don't got to kill him. <laughs> exactly. Well, I, yeah. I, I wonder if it was, part of it was ho- hope on her part because mm-hmm. she'd mentioned that, okay, I've got about a day and a half till I lose my mind. You know, hope that she could, that if she can talk him down, that there's, that if there's she gets to that point. Yeah. She won't be completely irrational. Although well. I think she's, I think she was in the scene to hear this, but Dr. Mbenga indicated that he's got a lot of damage to mm-hmm. the, uh, I know she did. Uh, he's got yep. a lot, a lot of damage to the language center in his brain and she's got a lot of activity in her language center. And, and so that's fine, except there isn't actually a language center in the brain. <laughs> There are four. So which one is it? <laughs> right. right. Um, you know, in that this conversation Kirk has with Yohora, he does mention his dad. It's something that came up in Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, which was this mm-hmm. this whole question is why does why does he care about strangers more than he does about me? Because he's gone in Starfleet yep. all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, and in, in this one, he this Kirk has resolved, resolved it by saying, I want to care about strangers like he does you know i want to yep. you know f- find that for myself which is interesting and uh another point is uh i was thinking when he kirk meets la'an 
later on when Kirk meets Khan in Space Seed, um, it's kind of funny mm-hmm. he doesn't say, hey, you know what? I met your great, 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 great granddaughter. <laughs> I, I know, I know, but it just something occurred to me. Um, so we have uh, Una and Pelia having their confrontation and this whole thing about whether it's Pelly is a space hippie, whether Una's just doesn't like not being the smartest one in the room. And then it comes down to her feelings about Hammer. So that that was an interesting aspect of that one. In in part of in in point of or I guess I in conjunction with um number one's statement to Pelia that she's sloppy. She doesn't just mean work-wise. I mean, she mentions you've got crumbs on your uniform, which I actually couldn't see. Maybe if you were watching this on a giant high def TV, you could. But what I did notice is after she comes back from working on stuff, she's got like a stain on her face from it's like she wiped her, got her hand on some dirt or something and wiped her face. And now she's got this stain on her face. Space so, <laughs> yeah, sp- space grease. So there is that they vi- do visually support the sloppiness charge in a literal sense. Mm-hmm. So Yohora finally figures out it's a communication. That's what's going on. It's an extremely alien communication. They're trying to communicate to her through the vocabulary of these visions. The visions themselves yeah. are a kind of vocabulary. Which are based on Uhura's memories. And when Uhura gets, when she twigs to this, and realizes they're using her as an interdimensional universal translator, she's able to walk back through each of the visions she had mm-hmm. and interpret it as a meaningful message. And I thought that was very nicely done. Mm, yeah. I like, I really like when they try to get like very interesting alien concepts like this. How would, you know, because not every alien can be a human being with bumps on their heads who speaks English through a universal <laughs> translator i like when they try to go alien with this stuff and and come up with a, a novel or interesting concept for this so I, that was really good so um yeah um just trying to think of what else uh, pelia gave una a c at the academy so that was nice a mm-hmm. uh, yeah. little, little bit of data and then we finally end up this the the episode with spock and kirk meeting for the first time which was a really nice touch i like the idea of yes. seeing this first meeting between the these two towering figures within Star Trek. So I thought that was really nice. So um, anything else, Father Corey? Any other notes from you? So the nebula was named Bannon's Nebula. And this was actually named by the producers for Brian Bannon, who was uh, Melissa Navia's partner. Melissa oh. Navia's Ortegas. Yeah. And he died about four years ago, suddenly, basically from leukemia. Like, I guess, according to the article, he it was diagnosed and four days later he died. And so this was kind of a, a nod to him. And there's an art, here's an article online and Screen Rant, I think it is, that, you know, you can, um, that talks about, you know, how she, she saw it as an honor to him and, you mm-hmm. know, and was honored that they were willing to do that. So that that's kind of a, kind of a neat little, little nod there. Cause there's, as far as I know, there's no actual Bannon's Nebula. But this was, again, a nod to him. I was a little irritated, though, because they kept using an anachronism that we know, at least I know, I, I'm pretty sure they would not use. They would not call it a gas station. <laughs> I kept calling it a gas station. <laughs> That's right. By that time, gasoline is probably well since out of use. Well, I mean, admittedly, Pike has got a little bit of attachment to the past. And deuterium is Peels- gas. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They would probably call it a fuel station or something like that. Yeah. But yeah. they were using it in the sense of a gasoline station. 
Yeah, I think it's. But yeah, you're you're right. It is a gas, but that is (laughs) anachronism, at least in my opinion. And there are lots of things that get started and stick in language long beyond anyone remembers their origin. Um, The greatest thing since sliced bread. Well, you know, we say that all the time or periodically we say it anyway. Mm -hmm. And no one knows the origin of that, which is that, um, you know, Sliced bread was actually introduced in 1927. Before that, you had to cut it yourself. So it was a (laughs) great thing when it got introduced. Similarly, if someone, you know, uh, adopts a position uh, lock, stock and barrel, Mm -hmm. people don't know that the stock and the barrel and the lock are the parts of a gun. Yep. So you're you're saying you've accepted it just like you accepted all three parts of a gun, the lock being the mechanism that fires the yep. bullet. Um, so we have lots of things like that that just stick in our language and remain for long periods of time, yeah. even when no one remembers where they came from. Mm. Like the whole nine yards is another one I, I like to remember. Mm-hmm. That's another one that has mm-hmm. a very uh, anachronistic origin. And if you get the whole nine yards out of fabric, you could be dressed to the nines. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Anything else, Father Corey? Nope, that's it. Jimmy, any other notes? I like that when Uhura proposes uh, destroying the station because they can't shut it down, um, Pike looks at her, and I was wondering if they were going to address this, but Pike looks at her because she's just come in with this theory about aliens and we haven't run any tests and, but we've got to do this really fast because of how bad things are. He actually does say, how certain are you? Yep. And so, okay, good. We at least got an important safety check there uh, because she has been hallucinating. Um, And I can imagine him saying, no, we're not going to destroy it, but at least they had a nod in that direction. Also, there's a nice scene where, where Chapel and Spock are playing chess and they are, which is kind of a surrogate for their relationship. And Spock says your move to her. And she realizes that saying your move is a uh, surrogate for saying, hurry up. (laughs) And, and they both end up saying your move to each other several times in that scene. Yeah. And, uh, which was nice. Also, in the scene where um, where George and or where Sam and Kirk, Jim Kirk and Uhura are piecing things together, it's in like a, a bio lab. And it looks like Sam has a little baby Gorn skull on his desk. Mm. Probably salvaged from the last season of those encounters. Mm. Or, or at least it's a replica. Yeah. Yeah. 3D printed. Yeah, you got good 3D replicators. (laughs) Very good. All right. So that is Lost in Translation. I did promise some feedback and we have some here uh, from Richard who sent in an email. He says, I bought the first season of Strange New Worlds from iTunes based on your discussions. Two thoughts. Maybe we should stay out of space away from other species. You know, new new exotic illnesses that we never have with no cure. Uh, And then he asks, would Hemmer's death be suicide, a mortal sin? It was clear he was killing himself by the fall and not just leaving the ship. Does committing suicide to save others make it acceptable? Thanks for the great show. Killing uh, yourself to save others does not make suicide acceptable. However, it just because you take an action that 
is foreseen to lead your to your own death does not mm-hmm. make it suicide. Um, the for example, uh, this question came up after the 9-11 attacks back in 2001 because there were people on the top of the Trade Center who jumped rather than face the flames. And there's question was, is that suicide? Well, and I can't speak to an individual's heart, but in principle, it's not because if you're jumping to escape being burned alive, you you're not trying to kill yourself. You're trying to escape the flames. You just foresee that doing it is going to lead to your death in the same way. If you, you know, if you could survive the fall, you would welcome that. You're not trying to bring about your death. You're just doing something you foresee will lead is very likely to lead to your death for a proportionate cause, namely to avoid being burned alive. Uh, similarly, the in World War One, the classic example is you're in a foxhole. Someone tosses in a grenade. Somebody jumps on it to save their buddies. What you're trying to do there is not kill yourself. If you can absorb the force of the grenade and still survive, that would be great. Very unlikely to happen, but your intent is not to kill yourself. Your intent is to save your buddies. And so if Hammer is leaping off of the ship in order to prevent his body from releasing stuff that's going to harm other people, then that would be his intent. He's not in, he wouldn't be intending to kill himself. He would be intending to protect others from Gorn biological material he might release. Very good. You're good. Also, if uh, if we stayed out of space, then we wouldn't have any cool science fiction series. So there's that. Book. <laughs> but, but I'm glad you enjoyed Strange New World Season 1 and our uh, our show. So we appreciate it. Excellent. So we'd like to, at this point, take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Star Trek, including Anna F., Stephen G., Jason K., Ruth K and Joseph F. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Star Trek and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So that's it from us this time. What did you think of this episode, Lost in Translation, and our discussion of it? You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash trek our Facebook page at facebook.com slash starquestmedia, or send an email to trek at sqpn.com, or visit our Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. You can watch us on The Secrets of Star Trek on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash starquestmedia. So I just want to give a program note is if you're listening to this as we release them, you will notice that uh, we had an episode on the episode charades come out. And then right away, we had another episode on this, this episode come out. Well, they've uh, released the next episode, those old scientists early, the folks at Paramount have, and then they're go- there's going to be another episode right after that. So we're going to be doing this again next week where we'll have two episodes of Secrets of Star Trek released uh, in close proximity. I'm not sure exactly how close, but I'll make it as close as I can. So next time we'll be discussing those old scientists, the Lower Decks crossover. So looking forward to that. Until then, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for joining me and sharing the Secrets of Star Trek. Thank you, and to quote the wormhole aliens, or the deuterium aliens, <laughs> Dude, did you just swear at me and Breen? Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Father Cory Stiga, thank you as well. Thank you, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest, and remember, you can let death win, 
or you can fight back by holding on to the ones you love. 